whether you're working with a psychotherapist, whether you're working in um, on your own artistic practice, whether you're looking at the wisdom traditions of the world, this theme pops up over and over and over again. You have to reconcile with your own internal opposites in order to commit to doing your, your duty in the world or your dharma or living your purpose in a way that's meaningful and not destructive. Process piece, conversations about the work behind the work with diverse artists from all over the globe. My name is Ruby Josephine Smith, and not only am I the creator and host of this podcast, I am a choreographer and contemporary dance artist. This is a podcast in process about process. I am not only fascinated by the creative process itself, but how to have better and more meaningful conversations about it with artists of different cultures, backgrounds, and mediums. Join me in digging deep into what it is that drives a person to make art. Hello again. It has been quite a long time since I sat in front of this microphone. The podcast is returning from a break that was a little longer than expected due to general uncertainty in this bizarre year that is 2020, as well as some personal life changes. However, I am so, so happy to be back now speaking with artists who I believe shed light, wisdom, and much-needed perspective on what the artistic process is looking like in a turbulent world. The conversations coming up for the foreseeable future are perhaps more linked than usual to the times in which they have been recorded, which is during a pandemic, an extremely polarized political climate in the US, as well as a deep unpacking of racism and systematic oppression in policies and ideas. All of these circumstances reverberate strongly into the art community, whichever medium you're in. And I believe that even though they are timely, they are also timeless in the ways that they speak to navigating struggle, external and internal crises, and coming together as community. Today's guest artist speaks to many of these themes with incredible thoughtfulness, vulnerability, and personal experience. Graduate of the National Circus School in Montreal, Antonia Dolhain has spent the last four years touring the world, teaching and performing with the likes of Cirque du Soleil, Cirque Aloise, and Celebrity Cruises, among others. Recently, she ran away from the circus to run back to herself. Now a trauma-informed breathwork facilitator and somatic practitioner in training, Antonia has returned to academia to pursue a joint degree in psychology and religion at Queen's University. Empowered by her own journey of recovery from childhood trauma, her purpose is to help others to reconnect with themselves through the creation process, embodiment practices, shadow work, and rituals, allowing them to reframe their relationship to life. In this absolutely fascinating and wild journey of a conversation, we cover so much ground from her history to working in the circus arts and finding her identity as an artist both within and outside of that world, to opening up about her personal experiences dealing with mental health and how that has led her into the world of healing practices such as breath and shadow work, over to looking at the creative process from a trauma-informed sense, all the way to the parallels between the artistic practice and polarizing politics. She also shares the most surprising and delighting answer I've ever received to my usual question about daily rituals that sustain a creative life. You'll have to listen until the end for that one. Antonia speaks with a sense of active and always learning wisdom, and I believe that the more quiet yet powerful work she is doing is so necessary, not only in our chaotic 2020 reality, but for anyone and any time to begin healing from the inside out. 
Before this episode begins, I just wanted to add a quick disclaimer that we do speak about microdosing as a part of Antonia's healing journey, and it is important to be clear that while she feels it's important to share information and be open about these experiences, you should not try any drugs or substances without consulting a licensed medical professional. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Antonia Dohane. Antonia, thank you so much for coming on to Process Peace. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I've been kind of watching as this has evolved, and I'm really excited to be um, speaking on your platform. Thank you. Thank you. I've been following your work for so long through circus, through movement, and now healing, and it's such an amazing journey to see, and I just can't wait to get into it more. So we're going to start kind of more back in the beginning, um, and I always like to ask the same question, which is, what is your first memory of creating something? Probably this puppet show through, like, we had one of those um, sets of stairs at uh, one of the houses I grew up in. We moved a lot, uh, but it had those spaces in between each step, and so Mm -hmm. I would attach my Barbies to chopsticks and then just I'd be like it's a puppet show but really I was just sort of like yanking them up and down uh, <laughs> through these stairs and, and being like mom watch <laughs> um, that's my first memory I don't know how old I was probably like old enough that it was embarrassing but hopefully yeah. around like three we're gonna say three. I love that <laughs> yeah that's not, that sounds yeah. about right Barbie puppet shows yeah. I love that so it was performance linked were you always um kind of doing performance at a young age yeah, and I used to kind of like destroy the house making props for myself as well. Like, um, you know, the, the twisty thing that um, controls whether blinds are open or closed? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, so I would take those off of basically any set of blinds in the house and attach <laughs> ribbons to them. And so go around the house with ribbons. And so this, this precluded my um, rhythmic gymnastics <laughs> days. But yeah, so I was running around the house like a mad demon with amazing with yeah these um, <laughs> ribbons or whatever attached to these oh. sticks and then I would just be like digging in the garden with these sticks and breaking them and climbing <laughs> up the walls we, we lived in a log house at one point where that was actually possible oh, wow. yeah very hyperactive child <laughs> you know sometimes a little destruction is needed for creativity especially yeah. as a kid so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um when did circus start to weave into your life oh um well, I've, I think I've always been competitive, but there, so Kidam came to Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, where I was at the time, I think I was about eight, um, and there was the Diablo act, and, and the girls in the act, like, I learned later that they were much older, but they looked really young to me, and so mm-hmm. I got jealous that they were on stage and being seen, and I wasn't, um, mm. so I decided that I was going to be the world's Diablo expert. <laughs> <laughs> And it transpired, so yeah, it transpired much later that I was absolute rubbish at juggling. But um, yeah, then then took an interest in silks, which no one wanted to teach me because of the steep learning curve. I mean, eventually, obviously, I ended up doing silks. But so it kind of started there. And I would passively was going to these youth circus programs over the summer. And then um, true to my nature, this is like a pattern that's carried on through adulthood. Um, I was like, what is the best possible school in the whole world? Um, for circus and I mean obviously this is debatable but at the time it was um, ENC or like at least the the most accessible school I could go to was ENC so when I was so yeah I I prepared for the audition for like a year and then auditioned and then got in so I went for the youth uh, the the CES high school program for a year 
In terms of being an artist, did you think of yourself as that early on or did that kind of come in later with your own creation process? Um, I'm trying to think of when I started identifying as an artist. Mm. In my family, especially on my dad's side, um, the, the two highest sort of aspirations or marks of um, worthiness were to either be in academics or in the elite art world. So I think mm, part of that was like hammered into my own subconscious um, and became part of my reality. And my, my dad never really did anything with his artistic career. So I think I was determined from a young age that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to actually mm. do it, you know? Right. Um, and I don't know whether that was for me or for him, mm. but uh, yeah, I did. I, I would say around high school is what, the first time that um, my, my artistic eye sort of to become more apparent. And it de mm -hmm. definitely didn't become apparent in the 3D arts. Like I was just there yeah. to fill the, the hour. Like I'm always more compositionally minded or um, per performance minded. Like when I hear a song, mm -hmm. I start to feel certain qualities in the body and then that translates into some sort of movement or mm -hmm. stage setup or yeah the, the, yeah, the lighting becomes clear. So I guess there's all kinds of different artistic sensibilities that mm -hmm. people are more, um, disposed to or not. I, I ask that partly because I think that circus, um, it's such a specific art form and I'm not sure if all circus performers would consider themselves artists. Um, Definitely not, no. I think actually yeah. like a minority of them would. Really? We, we, I think we were encouraged at ENC to think of ourselves like that, but I, I don't actually think if, if it were broken down, many of the ENC artists, well, th this is just my, my sense, um, you mm -hmm. know, maybe, maybe half or a third would consider mm -hmm. themselves artists or like really take that yeah in in that way um there seems to be that like small groups emerge every every year or every couple mm -hmm. years or so that end up really um taking the art of it to the next right. level right because it's so athletic i mean that almost can take over so easily definitely i mean yeah. like it's, it's what i noticed happening to me when i was at circa i was like this isn't this isn't a, like i don't <laughs> Right. I don't, I don't feel like I'm creating. I'm just like, yeah. Right. right. When you're part of a big company, I'm sure. Yeah. No, it's, I, I, and it's interesting because, you know, I know, of course, a lot of circus performers through my brother, who is as well at ENC, which is how I know you. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't talked to any circus artists yet. Um, and I always had you in mind because even just watching your performances and watching the videos you've done, I think you can really see that quality of an artist in someone and the way that they'll put together an act or put together a piece the way they move, the way they express themselves, you can really see the difference in that composition. And I always saw that in you and was really interested in that. And now even more interested in where you've taken that in your life. So I just, I appreciate that a lot. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I haven't made anything since that. Like, <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but, so I, that, that definitely challenges my own um, identity as an artist a lot of the time. Mm. And like, we'll we'll get to it, but that's kind of the the shadow of the artist archetype is this over-identification with the label of artist. And sometimes like freeing mm. yourself from that actually is what makes it possible for you to continue creating. Absolutely. Because people have different projections of what that should mean for you. I think if yeah. you can come to a definition for yourself, that's maybe a little more holistic. It can mm -hmm. be more healing and transformative, but it definitely starts out as more pressure because you mm -hmm. have to constantly be creating and be making. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. many ways, I feel like I'm still proofing my own process that I'll eventually be offering to other people because this is still something I struggle with all the time. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
which meeting is, my own expectations. You know, it's not uncommon, but uh, treating uh, the, the label of artist as a destination rather than um, a continuous evolution. Yeah. yeah. Can you just talk a little bit more about kind of your journey through circus to movement practice to kind of where you've come to now? Yeah. So through circus to movement. I mean, when I was at um, ENC, I did a, an enormous amount of research outside of school time. Um, started in the library and we have a great resource there, but I watched all of the DVDs more or less within about six months. Um, and eventually came across some clips from this dance company in Israel, which, you know, everyone obviously knows now called Batshaba. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time it was totally new to me because I think the circus arts can kind of be quite insulatory a lot of the time. Yeah. And that, I remember it was like my two obsessions at that time would have been like 2012 or 13 were um, like Serbian Orthodox music <laughs> and, <laughs> and Gaga. And, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't really touch the Gaga again for a little while until we had our exchange we do this artistic exchange with other art schools in mm-hmm. Montreal. Um, and I got placed in the contemporary dance school. And one of the pieces that they actually taught us as one of the activities was um, the, the deca dance, um, chair dance. So we oh, got really? taught a, a snippet of chair dance. Yeah. Incredible. And, um, I just remember the way that it felt in my body because we'd been doing this very structured ballet um, at school and I my body hates that I have a chronic pain condition and so holding and gripping my muscles like that um, mm-hmm. for such long periods was extremely painful for my body and you know like getting prodded a lot by my ballet teachers being like lift your leg higher but I mean my oh God, yeah. my, my joints it, I don't even yeah I don't know how I've um, I feel like my my time in circus was to, to try and almost like distract me from the pain because when your endorphins are that high it wow. acts as kind of anesthetic um, yeah. and so I found things now to kind of help with the pain and it's getting better but it, like lifelong I've had this for my whole life I just wow. assumed everyone felt like that um, yeah. until a couple of years ago um, in any case yeah so it made me feel free in my body in a way that I hadn't experienced before like I had just mm. been interested in Gaga more visually until I did this chair dance um, and then I sought out Gaga classes and um, was able to free something in my body and was able to find new pathways because something I was constantly frustrated by is I have a very clear vision in my head of what I wanted um, my movement in my silk to look like, but because especially in silk, we're patterned constantly to do like pretty hands. Um, that's always what would come out. And I was like, girl, like, how can I change this? How can I get rid Mm -hmm. of this? I don't want this in my body anymore. This isn't me. This is an expectation. It's an ideal that we've had created. You know, I know I got um, like body type cast into tissue, even though I Mm. wasn't necessarily interested in that by the time I got to the college program, because I look like a Russian ballerina, even though I do not right. dance like one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, my body wanted to move really differently. So Gaga really helped. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting. Free that. Yeah, so that's been an interest for quite some time now. And I, I got to a point where, like, I actually look quite good um, and <laughs> then stopped. And, yeah, it's one of those things where it's, like, especially if you're not, if you didn't grow up dancing, if you 
if you don't use it, you lose it. And um, I can really yeah. see that, especially after my injury. Now I'm starting to get back into it again after a year of mm-hmm. basically not being able to move at all. Right. And, um, but that's the beauty of Gaga. Is that what it's, that's, that's what it's for? That's what it brings you for. back. Yeah, totally. And I'm also seeing when I watch videos of myself, I'm seeing a map of all of my various um, like neuroses kind of stuck mm. in my body. Like mm-hmm. the places I don't move are a huge reflection of um, ways that I don't feel safe to, to put myself forward in the world. So I'm, I'm kind of looking at it through this healing lens now that I've kind of stepped yeah. into this world uh, as well um, and seeing potential there for really helping people break out of um, repetitive thought patterns because it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like whatever is happening in your thoughts can end up mirrored in your body mm-hmm. through uh, body armoring or anyways. Right. Um, Which is something that really shows up in dancers and we're often told things along those lines but if you don't have a really deep understanding of healing yourself internally it becomes just kind of an external correction yeah and so Which i'm can really be more damaging without the exactly context. yeah exactly you're like, oh, you're, then you're just kind of wrong. Yeah. twisting yeah mm-hmm. no that's so tr- and that's why i'm so fascinated by this idea of healing integrated with the creative process um and before we like really get into that i'm just curious to hear about how you really came into this whole new healing world um from all of that okay christ all right well um you're getting <laughs> kind of the, the good the bad the ugly all right well, yeah sure i um left enc so I, I moved to the uk because my boyfriend at the time my long-term boyfriend uh was based in the uk and we had planned uh while doing long distance to um to move there together to try and work on a duo so that we could work together um he was injured at the time so we couldn't do much by way of training so um but yes this was the plan and i was you know i was happy with the plan um and so i moved to london like a couple of days later, I got flown on this beautiful surprise trip to um, Salzburg, Austria, which is the the where my favorite one of my favorite movies takes place. The Sound of Music, obviously. Oh yes, <laughs> so, yes. And then I ended up getting proposed to, and so suddenly I was engaged. It's like added this kind of layer of um, pressure because I hadn't hadn't really been anticipating getting engaged until much later in my 20s or early 30s mm-hmm. yeah so so suddenly yeah there's all this responsibility I still had like you know $27,000 worth of student loans that I had to pay off and oh like this marriage that was somehow going to be paid for by god knows who and how and like we were living in his parents backyard I was feeling the stress of um trying to negotiate jobs and um like to the point where I was starting to apply in different fields altogether like I just graduated from service school but I was applying for all these like fashion internships without any sort of fashion experience but Mm -hmm. I've always been a kind of like throw the spaghetti at the wall person and try and like figure it out afterwards (laughs) (laughs) there's something to say for that (laughs) yeah yeah and uh yeah so I I had gotten two offers to be part of Cirque du Soleil while I was in my last month at ENC and I turned them both down because they would have involved me going off solo. And then um, the the third time it came along was a couple months into me being in London. And I think I was just so, so stressed out about funds and money and like getting jobs. Money was always an issue um, growing up in my family. And so there was that, that uh, you know, you're coming from a different place than your partner. Backgrounds are different. Uh, he yeah. didn't totally get it, but... Um, so yeah, so uh, a lot of tension, a lot of arguments. I off, I ultimately ended up going, and right. um, 
a couple months into that contract, the, the, the relationship basically fell apart. And so um, this grieving process began while I was changing cities every week with this brand new cast who didn't really know me very well and who were, who assumed that I broke it off because I was cheating on my ex with someone else. Oh God. Um, which was not <laughs> That's true. That's so isolating. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really isolating. And um, so this continued for like a year and a half <laughs> on wow. the tour with very little support. And yeah, I, I mean, I am lucky in the sense that I think it was good for me to have a place that I was required to show up every single day at the same time and you know as structured and um, horrible as that structure is for artistically minded people like in a company like Cirque du Soleil um, right. uh, I think that structure actually as much as I resented it really gave me a backbone <laughs> um, yeah. during that time so sure. I can look back on it and uh, be appreciative for that uh, yeah so I was in therapy until um yeah, basically until the show ended in June 20, 2019, my gosh, dates, yeah, and I'd had a couple, like, you know, not so healthy relationships in between, like, sort of flingy, whatever they are, just, yeah, like, desperately trying to get away from this um, pattern of, of, I don't want to say toxic relationships, because I feel like this is the, a word that's thrown around a lot, it's not people, mm. people aren't toxic, <laughs> you right. know, patterns are destructive uh, but people yeah. are not toxic in and of themselves so mm. um yeah just trying to get away from these these patterns and and yet constantly finding myself in yeah. them um through the drama of trying to get as far away from them as possible it's like you actually have to get really close to them in order to transcend them but yeah um, yeah so this uh tour ended i was dating this rigging technician who had um rather bad ptsd so he would go into these flashbacks. I'd be like, you know, holding him while he cried himself to sleep every night. And um, he had started microdosing LSD for this. And being like not a person interested or involved in um, recreational drugs at all, I was like, you're a fucking idiot. That's a terrible idea. Um, but then I kind of yeah. watched over time as um, he didn't cure him of his P PTSD, but his flashbacks got a lot less intense. Hmm. Um, and so I was like, Hmm. And then I remembered seeing an article like a couple of years back talking about MDMA for PTSD because they were testing this. It was the, um, the, the Mithoffer study, Michael and Annie Mithoffer, who were doing these uh, therapeutic sessions with war vets with PTSD. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I remembered that and I was like, oh, yeah, like I wonder if that would help him. Um, and so... I was looking up as much information as possible. I was like, hey, there's the clinical trials. Okay, they're all full. Um, and then I kind of turned to the underground a little bit. Uh, I had no idea. Like, can you imagine? I'm like the most vanilla person ever. I had no idea how to find anyone underground. <laughs> I know. What a world to enter. I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> yeah. And um, I ended up finding this article on a website. Um, it's like a well-known, I'm not going to name it for reasons, um, <laughs> sure. like news website. And so I ended up stalking the author of this news article online for his personal email address and then emailing him asking who sat for him because he had described his experience working underground. Um, mm. And he, within 20 minutes, sent me back an email with this, with the name of the sitter wow. uh, in New York. I, yeah, took this to my ex and was like, all right, I think like I, I found something, I found something that could help you, you know? Mm -hmm. And he was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. And that was kind of like 
part of what I ended up, what ended up leading me to, to call the relationship is that it's like he was in extreme suffering, but he just wasn't like capable or ready of, he just didn't believe that healing was possible for him. So any mm. steps towards that, he just wasn't, just wasn't taking. And um, mm. like, I felt like I needed that in the relationship. Like I needed us to be moving forward in a direction. So I wasn't, you know, just sort of, yeah, acting like a, a, a shepherd for his symptoms. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, and then I realized, like, I was getting really upset over this. I was like, why? Like, I've done all this work to find this thing. Why won't you just do it? <laughs> like, it's, you know, all of the FDA uh, phase two trials are showing, like, a, you know, a huge um, reduction in symptoms. Um, and, like, a lot of people uh, at the end of these studies are, you know, don't even meet the diagnostic criteria, criteria for PTSD afterwards. So I was like, why wow. wouldn't you try this, you know? Um, and it's now been granted um, FDA phase three uh, treatment breakthrough status so they're doing extended studies now because it's just so Incredible. effective um, yeah. so I decided that if I was um, passionate and upset enough and like emotionally reactive enough over this thing uh, that maybe I was the one who should be doing it so <laughs> maybe yeah so I ended it's up telling you something I ended up doing it obviously like really w would seem really sketchy uh, like I got in contact with as many people as I could, who were in the surrounding area that I would be in, letting them know where I was going to be, what I was doing. Um, so everyone was aware of where I was. Um, and there were several meetings um, over Skype to begin with, like sort of pre-therapeutic pre meetings, which is as close to being in line with the um, FDA trials as, as possible for the underground. So there was a, a yeah. certain level of responsibility happening there and then yeah so over the course of six months I went three times wow. and um, I have now spent enough time in this world to know that that person while being a perfectly adequate sitter which was pr probably knowing my history of my own childhood trauma which I won't get into in this episode um, mm. was probably not adequately equipped to deal with the imprints of trauma or to recognize them as they were coming up mm. in these altered states so I still experienced an um, incredible um, amount of healing from the sessions that, that I did um, wow. and yet some of the patterns that I had were repatterned in those sessions because mm. of a lack of understanding around okay. around how trauma can arise in altered states so I then ended up working on a cruise ship and got injured on this cruise ship due to negligence so within a month of me being on this contract I had this injury that just kept getting worse they took seven weeks to send me to a doctor by the time um it was actually addressed and sort of came to a head I I, could just, I couldn't walk um there was an wow. accident that, that happened on stage um they're like I, my, my back went into a spasm and um it was so bad they gave me horse tranquilizer it was a mess anyways oh my god um I could barely walk I could barely get dressed um and so they were going to send me home, of course, and of course, uh, yeah. because I needed so much help doing things, I realized I wouldn't be able to go back to London because all of my friends are circus artists there and wouldn't be able to help. So I had them send me back to Vancouver. And Vancouver is a place I never, ever wanted to move to again. Wow, <laughs> um, that's so interesting. Yeah. And so I was very, very begrudging. Um, yeah, I just did not want to be back. Um, but yeah, so I, I had been working with a, a new therapist. This therapist also is the sort of founder of several different um, growth communities in Vancouver. And so I ended up following in with a lot of these people. 
it, this ultimately like ended up massively accelerating my healing process through the different um, processes that they practice. Um, and they, they practice a thing called um, like shadow work, which is a, a simplified version of it's one aspect of, of union union theory being used. Mm-hmm. Um, I I believe people who have suffered from trauma or who have um, reacted to trauma can still benefit from it, but it's not like mm-hmm. it's not like a treatment for trauma, you know. So it's just like a different angle. So I was kind of hitting it from all angles. I had this like yeah. these psychedelic experiences. I had done CBT for two years. I then started doing shadow work, and now I'm working with. Um, a depth therapist who specialized in her field. Um, and I'm also doing breath work and I've, I've now, um, yeah. uh, breath work was such a big thing for me because it kind of grounded all of this processing we were doing on a mental level. Cause like in therapy, mm-hmm. you're, you're working at a very mental level, um, and helped ground that in my body. So, yeah. Um, that's so important as someone who's worked with movement your whole life, I'm sure that it needed that kind of centering. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I was getting really caught up in the conceptual um, mm-hmm. aspect of healing, and as much as it is very constructive to do that unwinding process on a mental level to kind of get to the root of things, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I, I understand the sort of root of it, or I can see the the different layers of the root, um, and yet it, it's things in my life still aren't changing. It's not making sense. And what breath work really mm-hmm. did for me, I know. Um, breathwork is still new for a lot of people and it sounds kind of stupid you're like what am I going to do just by breathing (laughs) but um, it it, but it's something so many people are already doing within yoga and meditation in certain ways that they don't really but they don't clarify it in those same terms yeah it all falls under the umbrella of breathwork um right but what the modality of breathwork that I ended up practicing did for me was yeah it uh, took that those conceptual things and I ended up having these several very uh, moving experiences um, that I wouldn't necessarily call spiritual. I think a lot of people go to breathwork for that. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to explain. It's like you you just fall deeper and deeper into levels and layers of understanding of very simple concepts. Like sometimes you think mm-hmm. you understand something and then it grounds more in your body and you're like, oh, like that thing. Like love yeah. is really all we need. <laughs> and then you end up feeling wow. sort of daft, <laughs> yeah. you know, but... um. <laughs> But when it's really embodied, it takes on this whole new depth that you don't expect. Yeah. And it's funny because the first time a realization hit like that, not love is all you need, but, you know, some 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 sort of thing that I'd <laughs> the been The Beatles on, knew it all. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of thing I'd been like, you know, working on in therapy for ages, ended up sinking in my body. I'd go, oh, okay, cool. Like, I don't need to work on that anymore. I get it now. And then mm. you know, a couple of weeks later, because I'd been breathing almost every single day, um, mm-hmm. what we do anyways, but breath work almost every single day. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, a couple of weeks later, I'd have another experience that like, um, took me through the same concept, but from a different, from a different experience, from a different angle, and then grounded it even deeper into my body. And I'm like, Oh, like I get it deeper wow. now. Now I get it. And then it, it's yeah. just become clearer and clearer over time that you can just deepen this understanding. Like, over and over and over and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper with everything and I think um, that's kind of what's helped me understand a lot of people's pursuit for enlightenment because it seemed funny to Mm. me for a long time just speaking from the spiritual I used to really hate spiritual people (laughs) Um, (laughs) interesting um, yeah but 
I was just like, how can you be striving for something that you can already conceptually understand? Like, what mm. more do you want from it? You can already explain it to me. So what, what more are you looking for from this? And breathwork has actually mm. kind of helped me understand, oh, there's understanding things in the conceptual level. And then there's mm -hmm. all these other layers that you can go to with it. And the deeper you ground yeah. those knowings, the more your life starts to change around you. Um, yeah. in seemingly miraculous ways, but it's just like bringing material from your subconscious, patterns from your subconscious, beliefs from your subconscious to the conscious and being able to like accept and integrate those things. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. And it's, you know, I, when I'm doing these conversations, I'm often thinking in the back of my mind, like how this connects to creativity and art mm -hmm. and just what you're talking about as a dancer resonates so deeply because I think as, as a movement artist, there is this kind of surface level of conceptually understanding the movement you're doing or the expression you're trying to do, but the deeper it is in your body, the more of a whole embodied experience you're going to be having and then sharing with whoever is watching the performance or video or whatever you're creating. Um, I think that kind of knowledge just is going to trickle down into every area of life, creativity included. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Um, so that's just what that's what comes to mind at, at, when you're talking about that. But I'm also curious to hear in your own words because I saw on Instagram you wrote that breath work has really been influencing your artistic process. And I know you're saying your artistic process is a little bit on the back burner, but I was wondering how that has been coming up for you. Totally. Um, well, as I'm sort of integrating aspects of my own trauma i mean it's freeing you spend an enormous amount of energy when you are in um a reactive state of trauma like, I, I feel like it's important for context to say i i was given the diagnosis of complex ptsd um mm -hmm. through my own therapeutic process and um if there's anyone else listening or who will be listening who knows that they have that diagnosis you, you know that it's extremely draining like it's extremely draining mm -hmm. to constantly be fighting your own um nervous system responses uh just constantly mm. being in, in overreaction to everything constantly um a lot of people with cptsd suffer from a high level of anxiety and that feeling of breathlessness that you get from anxiety often has to do with the fact that you're taking such shallow breaths that your body doesn't have enough time to actually absorb oxygen <laughs> um wow yeah into into your own body so it's like you're you're um hitting these high levels of CO2 in your own body. And like CO2 is not, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's not just a waste product. It's actually very beneficial for a lot of um, processes mm. within the body, but learning about breath work, learning how to like up-level my neurocircuitry and um, regulate my nervous system has freed up so much energy. And um, mm. that life force energy behind the creative impulse um, mm that can manifest as like a destructive kind of expression of it or a quite like soft, almost maternal like quality that you're, you're bringing something into a being or midwifing something into being can't come through as much if you're just in this constant vortex of pain. <laughs> um, yeah. And so um, breath work more than anything else in helping me to regulate my nervous system has freed up some of that space for the creation yeah. process to actually happen. Um, and it's really helped me with my recovery from my injury because that was, um, it's been nearly a year now and mm -hmm. I'm just starting to get moving really gently again. So, so 
TBD, like you might see more art from me. I don't want to expect it yeah. from myself because that's when I'm just no. Yeah. That's the whole thing is just kind of working off of impulses, I think. And I actually, I hope you don't mind. I wanted to read some words that you wrote back to you <laughs> and kind of talk about them. They're from your Instagram, something you wrote really recently. I tried to paraphrase it, but I found the whole thing really beautiful. Um, you wrote, um, giving my grief shape through the artistic process has allowed me to heal. But as I discovered, the same processes can have very different effects if appropriate boundaries aren't set. We can begin to mine our darkness as if it were the sole source of our creativity, further perpetuating our suffering. We can draw boundaries by prioritizing our health over our creative process. Um, and I just thought that was so beautiful and something that so many people don't really think about. We were talking about this before we started recording, but being an artist can become such a strong um, definition that you really hold on to too tightly mm -hmm. and it often doesn't leave room for healing yourself which like you said come should come first because then it gives more space exactly as you were saying to the artistic process so I was wondering if you would like to elaborate on that at all yeah sure well first of all I'm I'm happy that someone reads what I write like <laughs> since since posting a lot less circus content and announcing that I'm kind of taking a step back from that world I've just been losing mm -hmm. followers like gangbusters and it's fine it's just um it's, oh, it's a mean, shift yeah. it's a shift that's yeah. happening so I'm glad I'm <laughs> glad someone's I'm glad someone's valuing what I'm what I'm bringing forward there what I see a lot of and what I see as an obstacle in the healing specifically for people who are artistically minded is this idea like well I mean, we've known for a long time that there's this glorification of the sort of suffering artist archetype. Mm -hmm. And exactly. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with seeking some sort of relief from one's own darkness through the creative process. You know, a lot of people find it quite therapeutic to express mm -hmm. and, and, and in many forms of psychotherapy, um, people are encouraged to give shape to whatever their feelings, even if that's like drawing little triangles all over the page, like just getting into your body and going, you know, where do I feel this feeling in my body instead of describing it with words? Cause sometimes you just mm. can't, you just can't get there with words. You're just using analogy after analogy. Like, where do I feel this in my body? Like, okay, in my, in my chest, like, does it have a shape? Does it have a color? Mm. Is it hot? Like, does it make a sound? What does it taste like? And really getting curious about the full sensory spectrum of experience can help you bring it out of yourself in a way that you can um kind of look at it and and it's just not as scary anymore like if nothing's as scary mm. when it's on like when it's in 3d or like 2d on a page you know it just yeah. gives you some sort of relief so i think the artistic process can be incredibly healing in that way the trouble comes when you start to conflate your pain with your own ability to express yourself creatively to begin with and uh, mm. part of the trouble stems from you know over identifying um, as an artist to begin with we kind of talked about this before part of the the tendency with mental illness to begin with is is over identifying with your own emotional states um, mm -hmm. I mean science has shown that uh, neurochemically you're only affected by every emotion for a, like a, an average of about 90 seconds so any mm, wow. Yeah, so I was really surprised to learn this because that is any, really surprising. any continued reaction that you have to the initial emotional impulse is is due to, well, this is oversimplifying vastly, but um, <laughs> can be said to be due to a, an identification with that emotional state. I'm having this feeling, therefore, that means something about me. You know, mm -hmm. I'm feeling sad, therefore, I am sad. 
and that's yeah. where you get into trouble and it's the same thing in art like i'm feeling sad and i've created something therefore i can only create when i'm sad and so you end up self-perpetuating mm. this cycle of suffering mm -hmm. in order to achieve <laughs> your yeah. your your artistic ideals and it just doesn't have to be like that i mean any expression of internal truth can look you know it can look however it just has to be true for you and someone's going to resonate with it right but yeah. um that's definitely something that i caught myself in is uh less with like mining my own sadness but it was more mm -hmm. this sort of like angry sarcasm or like angry <laughs> satirical kind of i mean my whole my whole um silks act was I, I, I can look back at it now and go, I know exactly why I created that. Like, I know exactly where I was at mentally. Mm. I mean, um, I struggled. Which is incredible to have as like an emotional map of yourself. Yeah. Um, but also you can see maybe where you need to grow from there. Mm -hmm. The only way that I felt safe expressing myself within the world of Ariel was by making fun of it. And it was, you know, mm. it was more nuanced than that, but it was a sort of um, satirical piece. Like I was drawing attention to the fact that we only like Ariel when it looks a certain way. And um, mm -hmm. so like, I don't know if anyone's going to watch the act, I, if I have to give context to that. But um, I can, I'll share a link in the show notes. If yeah. Wants to. <laughs> um, it's beautiful. Thank you. And you can see the satire as well. But yeah. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I, I had I've, um, like not spoken word, but just these clips of um audio throughout being like, you know, beautiful, I like your hair, or just just that this huge trick might have been done and that we're still focusing on the, the, the external expression of the beauty. But the, yeah. the, the, theme, yes, the, the theme of the act was this seed artificial intelligence becoming progressively more conscious as it sort of ascended levels. Um, and mm. I created this sort of um, like elevator structure to it with the music mm -hmm. as well. So like it had th three or four floors and um, the music became more nuanced on each floor and like mm. more complicated on each floor had more levels to it so that um i could bring progressively more movement so it started with very kind of um like sharp movements and then evolved into more flow towards the end and i had to choreograph the blinks but this was all wow. i just felt really stuck um stuck within myself and i felt like the only way that i could actually adequately express myself through my own medium was by um like artificially creating the structure that I felt uh, stuck within, like within myself externally. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And so this is still like something I'm trying to break out of. So I, yeah. like, I still notice in my work when I'm creating things, I, I give, I put myself in boxes in my own work. Um, mm -hmm. Like a, a piece that I was working on that's still needs to be completed is this piece called Adam's Rib. And it's just like this big wooden rib, rib cage almost with these like hinged rib pieces that I, I wear like a harness on me that, you know, can, can be used or to tr be transformed into furniture. But just this idea that like we're as women, and this wasn't meant to be like a feminist um, comment, though obviously it kind of became mm -hmm. one. I, I feel right. often within myself and, you know, occasionally as a woman that um, I am placed within this framework that I'm expected to navigate around and it's heavy and um, mm -hmm. navigating the feeling of being objectified. And so I wanted to literally create a piece that was heavy, that I felt constricted in and that I, that could be worn as both a costume, but also turn me into a piece of furniture. So that was the idea behind mm. Adam's rib. But just, I'm just noticing these themes 
um, coming out over and over. And I think that can be a great tool for self-reflection is really noticing what you've created and what that says about like the internal map of your own psyche and maybe going, Oh, like, is there anything, am I, am I happy with this? Am I happy with the states I've been creating these things from? Could anything shift or want things to be different? doesn't mean that you're going to be making some like Care Bear rainbow show (laughs) if you you start finding a little more balance and joy in your life. Yeah. And I think, I think I kind of had that idea. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's what you get stuck with then is suddenly you think that you have to always find your suffering in order to make great art. But I don't think it's about necessarily that, but it is about going through what it is you need to work through. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's not always deep suffering, but it's some concept that you have questions to explore still. Yeah. Suffering is part of the human condition, as many a philosopher would tell you. I mean, or, you know, mystic with samsara and the cycle of suffering and life and rebirth and death and rebirth. But it, there's so much more happening within that. That cycle really just gives us the framework and um, the urgency to really express that um, mm-hmm. so rather than seeing that as like the only characterizing factor of the human experience. I think there's a, there's a lot to be expanded on within that. And many people yeah. are doing it. This is literally just me talking to myself <laughs> right now, <laughs> coaching right. myself. Yeah. So, so I, I am looking forward to continuing with this and, um, because I've been there, hopefully devising some sort of um, methodology that's trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not just working with artists, but anyone who wants to tap into that creative impulse, um, hopefully get some like psycho-spiritual counsel through the act of incorporating movement and breath work and yeah, shadow yeah. work. I don't know what it looks like yet. I'm in a business program. We're like doing the whole thing, filling out the questionnaires. Like, what's your oh, why? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't oh fucking goodness. know. It's, it's too broad. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, sometimes I feel like gonna I'm going to figure it out as I go. <laughs> it totally. And I could like write for ages, right? I'm sure everyone's noticed oh, by now that I love to talk and I get stuck in tangents and loops. And I mean, that's part of, um, part of my my artist's brain I I'm just gonna yeah. say that to like excuse myself I think a lot of artists can relate to this like you you oh, talk yeah. about one thing and then your brain makes a connection with another thing and like 20 simultaneous things at once and that's what you know helps you oh my gosh hold together yes. influences from all over but it does make for an, endo- an, an annoying interview so I'm sorry um no not at all I mean on, to be <laughs> honest I mean I'm the I'm the host here technically but my brain is doing that at the same time as you say things I'm yeah. like oh yes this connects to that I have to talk about that later yeah. and and I never get to all of the connections that I've made but I I mean, it's, it's so true. I think that is part of the artist's brain. Yeah. What is your movement practice looking like currently? Because it seems like you're starting to get back to a bit of dance and movement. Yeah, I'm currently doing Gaga about four times a week. And currently that's all my back can really handle. And I am recording things and I am looking at um, how my body's moving as a way of kind of exploring for myself where I'm getting stuck internally and right mm-hmm. now I just see a lot of fear in my body mm-hmm. um you know part of that's normal when you get injured and you start moving again there's a lot of uh, tenseness because you don't want to yeah you don't want to re-injure things but also a lot of uh starting ideas and not finishing them mm-hmm. which ends up kind of just looking like flailing <laughs> um, <laughs> which there's a place for <laughs> yeah there's a place for but but that the theme of like not wanting to commit to certain ideas because mm. if I do and it doesn't look good then there's like that that shame piece that comes in so mm-hmm. um yeah I'm really trying to like analyze myself as I would a potential 
client in the future and figure mm -hmm. out, all right, where we're going to move next, how we're going to address this in, in a holistic way that doesn't um, reactivate that shame core that perfectionism rises out of, you know? Yeah, that is such an interesting way to look at it because I think it's so hard as a movement artist to step back and look at yourself so objectively um, mm -hmm. and not look at it just from the aesthetic, this is what I think I should be looking like. I, I've struggled with that for so long and mm -hmm. I'm still working through that. Yeah. Yeah. And just like to circle back to that original thing that we talked about right at the beginning. I mean, that is the source of most people. Most people suffer from like a very um, activated toxic shame core. Shame can be like a very positive mm -hmm. motion. It, it tells you when you've um, crossed your own boundaries or violated one of your own core values. So it can be mm -hmm. a sort of way of course correcting. But when it when you starts when we start to identify with it, and this happens for a lot of people, yeah, it can form this kind of toxic shame core within you. And yeah. perfectionism is one reaction to that. This idea that like I'm not enough. I always have to do better. Nothing I ever do mm -hmm. is is enough. And so addressing that um, that impulse without reactivating that shame core further is actually a really difficult balance to strike with myself yeah. and with other people you know it's like you don't want to make yeah. you feel wrong or bad for having this perfectionistic tendency to begin with or make them feel broken right. um it's just such a common thing we all grew up in family systems where people had different expectations we weren't seen mm -hmm. um, and so having that awareness and bringing compassion to uh, and i know it's like super over uh <laughs> over discussed at this point but you know your your inner child uh, it's almost yeah. cliche that doing yeah. inner child but it's work, valid. It's valid. It really, it, you know, yeah. it's not everything. It's just an aspect of yeah. a different way of looking at healing or approach to it. Well, I think it makes so much sense that I was so drawn to you to talk to for this because I, I'm just seeing a lot of myself reflected in what you're saying, not to turn it back around on me, but no, 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 totally. Um, I think that's what, that's what but, want, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, just the, the resonance, I think. Um, and that's exactly it is. I've definitely struggled with that shame spiral and shame core with um with watching myself dance and identifying as a dancer it's it's been a struggle that i'm only just now starting to detach from and mm -hmm. i mean that beginning process of detachment is not easy it's never it, i don't think it's easy the whole way through mm -hmm. yeah i mean I've, I've found a couple of ways of kind of addressing it when it comes up but just being like just sort of not, not to gratitude shame myself because i think that that can end up in its own shame spiral mm -hmm. um, yeah for but sure to be like to look at me dancing and go dang like I am so lucky to be in a position where I can afford not only to take an hour out of my day to dance and to do all mm. of this healing work because like like therapy and stuff it is not financially accessible for most people like no. you know yeah. um I have been very blessed to be able to go on that um journey for myself but yeah watching myself dancing and going I, I'm just so lucky to have all the tools in my toolbox that I do. I'm so lucky yeah. to be able to experiment. I'm so lucky that my back injury didn't land me in a wheelchair. Just yeah. um, it's even though I feel put out right now and I feel self-conscious and I feel all these things um, and it's okay to feel that just trying to shift that, that um, anxiety into like delight, you know, mm -hmm. how delightful yeah. to get to play with, all of these awkward angles and stiff like yeah <laughs> yeah and and that's part of what gaga is all about is uh, like f finding pleasure in your fatigue finding pleasure in yes. the, the awkwardness of just being alive <laughs> and trying yeah. to move in this weird that. flesh like yeah flesh vessel of of crazy <laughs> 
I, I love that. <laughs> the awkwardness of being alive. It's so true. Yeah. How I just wanted to zoom out a little bit at the end because I think healing is such a necessary thing to talk about and practice, especially right now, because I think there's kind of a collective trauma happening in the whole world. And I'm just wondering how how you're dealing with that and then how you're also kind of zooming that out to maybe more of a collective sense of it. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that I do agree that healing is um, essential for everyone. The other thing I'd say is that what I'm seeing on Instagram a lot is an over-identification with the healing process. Just like you Mm -hmm. can become over-identified with the title of artist, I think you can become over-identified with your healing process and cause yourself to believe that you're just never healed, never this. And like, it's just Mm. the the process of unwinding generational reactive patterns within your own body is is a never ending process. So like trying not to identify with it is hard, Um, but I feel Mm -hmm. like it's also part of the process in and of itself is just realizing that you're just learning to take better responsibility for your own life and take better care of yourself. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, we are seeing this on a, on a mass scale with a lot of uncertainty happening. And I think that that empowerment piece is more important than ever because a lot of people are feeling mm-hmm. powerless and a lot of our own unresolved internal authority complexes are being mirrored in the outside world in these intense imbalances of power within our own governments and so on. Yeah. And so I think the only thing to really do in circumstances like this is to um yeah turn inwards and do our own shadow work and um because the more you can claim the more you can observe everything that you hate about the world right now within yourself realize you have that in within you and acknowledge Mm -hmm. that and love that um the more available you are to actually navigate conflicts with other people who have maybe opposing ideologies um in a way that um doesn't cause further division. I really feel like mm. that um, that internal division that's that's so pervasive within so many of us is being reflected in the outside world. Just not to say yeah, that you know really extremely. Yeah. yeah. Also to note that everything we're being called forth to do is a form of shadow work. Like the anti-racism work is a form of shadow work. It's going. I see all the ways that I am racist. In, like yeah. inside all of the potential that I have, whether I am actively seeing it or not. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm bringing it forth into the light so that I can really look at it and work on it. it, it and and yeah. loving a part of yourself doesn't mean that you're enabling yourself to continue being that way. You know, it's just right. acknowledging that yeah. you have it and loving yourself where you're at and um, continuing mm-hmm. to move forward. Because if you're continuing to hate on this part of yourself you, and you can't move forward, your nervous system's always right. in activation and you're more likely to react to someone else who's calling you out for doing something, you know, exactly. so it's just constantly... Or when you see that reflected in someone else. Yeah, because as much as, whether it's racists or like Trump supporters or whatever, they are just doing the best they know how in, to take care of themselves. That's all yeah. anyone's trying to do. Yeah, I, I think we all, all need to recognize what the right actually stands for. Um mm-hmm. And what the left actually stands for and not see them as conflicting ideologies but rather differing parts of the same whole i mean like mm. to, over, to really simplify it the the right stands for individual liberties and the the, the right to individuate and the left stands mm-hmm. for you know personal responsibility to the collective and both of those things are utterly necessary if we're going to mm-hmm. function in a just society so demonizing yeah. either side is not wholly like 
sounded really yeah. political, but I just like I, I no, but to yeah, kind of emphasize that uh, both of these energies um, exist within us. Whether you're working with a psychotherapist, whether you're working in um, on your own artistic practice, whether you're looking at the wisdom traditions of the world, this theme pops up over and over and over again. Yeah, that it's just that you you have to reconcile with your own internal opposites in order to really um, commit to doing your your duty in the world or your dharma or living your purpose in a way that's meaningful and not destructive because this mm -hmm. path can be harmful or beneficial depending on the intention that it's being traveled on with so that got that that went there no that was, that was beautiful i'm i'm like speechless because that's like putting into words so much of what i've been thinking lately mm -hmm. and i think it's completely valid to bring in the political right now because i think everything in art right now is also political and like you said everything is so extreme and that includes political parties that it is this whole bringing together and this trying to find connection between the two extremes and mm -hmm. letting paradoxes exist together that's something i've talked about with a lot of other artists on this podcast in different forms but i mean i think that's what it comes down to a lot yeah and i mean i also feel like it, it ties back to art in the sense and this is something i used to talk to my students about when I was still doing a lot of coaching, like on the spectrum of contemporary art to commercial art. Um, mm -hmm. Like rather than looking at it like a straight line, looking at it like a circle and kind of realizing that you can be on the contemporary art spectrum and be creating work that's like really beautiful and nuanced from a place of like wanting to bring those energies forth and share them with the world. Or you can be on mm -hmm. the contemporary art spectrum because you're afraid of being seen and you want to create something so impenetrably dense that you can hide behind it. Um, mm -hmm. And the intention totally informs the outcome and you're going to draw a lot of people who have similar kind of wounds. And this gets complicated because you can be like, oh, if, if I'm not resonating with it, does it make it um, not, not art? And it's like, no, absolutely not. But you, you can kind of, right. there's an energetic quality behind what someone's creating that you can feel mm -hmm. whether it was created from a place of authenticity or from a place of wounding. And the, the, the core of that and the intention and the energy behind that, I think makes all the difference, whether you're in contemporary mm -hmm. art or commercial art. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And, and I think it's just like anything in life. You can give a gift from a place of wanting to give, or you can give a gift from a place of wanting something back. And mm -hmm. the, the outcome is, or the, the, objectively the act is the same either way someone mm -hmm. gets a gift but the energy behind it is completely different so examining one's motivations yeah. for doing the things they do um which is part of shadow work is is extremely important no matter what sphere of life you're interacting within yeah so that's that makes so much sense to me yeah so i always like to end by asking are there any um daily rituals of any kind that are enhancing your creative process at the moment yes actually um i i have been hesitant to come out of the the like proverbial closet with this but i have been practicing <laughs> ritual magic over the past which really? has like really sort of negative connotations due to like extreme dramatization in hollywood but it's it's basically like it mirrors a lot of um a lot of different wisdom traditions around the world it's basically just um most of the most of the rituals center around placing yourself in the middle of um it's almost like you're creating a, a stage with your own visualizations. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I was drawn to it because the rituals are actually quite mm. performative. So I'm literally yeah. speaking about a ritual right now. I know you probably met like routines in my daily life, but no, I love it. Every that's morning, I most do, literal. Yeah, every oh. morning I do three, um, 
three rituals and it's um sort of in the in the western esoteric tradition as started by the hermetic order of the golden dawn which started in england in the 1800s um but it's sort of a mix of judeo-christian mysticism um egyptian mythology and and greek mythology as well but um mm -hmm. The, the symbology is so complex and nuanced, you can really go down a rabbit hole kind of investigating mm -hmm. the, the intention behind the, um, yeah, the, the placement of, of each word within the context of the ritual. But basically what rituals are all for, no matter what tradition you're in, is to mm -hmm. essentially realize that you are a manifestation of this universal creative energy that encompasses all of the different archetypal energies that we're familiar with um, mm -hmm. and that by bringing balance to these energies and realizing that they're all ultimately us, we can connect to our own sense of self-responsibility, our own sense of grounding and really live our life from a sense of purpose. So, I mean, the foundational ritual that I usually do in the morning is called the, the LBRP, <laughs> um, okay. which stands for, uh, like your listeners are going to be like, what the fuck? It stands for Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. Okay, so when I got, when I got invited- I am so fascinated to research more about this <laughs> personally. <laughs> so I got invited to this group in Vancouver and the first time someone invited me, they're like, do you want to come to magic? I was like, fuck you. That sounds like bullshit. Um, you know, it sounds like some wizard, like, like, do we have to cosplay? What is this? And I thought it was ridiculous <laughs> for the first couple of meetings, but I just kept coming to them. So anyways, now here we are. Um, <laughs> I do see a lot of parallels between like uh, t Tibetan Buddhist rituals, which are very elaborate. Um, they're just mm -hmm. um, same concept, but from totally different traditions in the world. But yeah, so you're, you're placing yourself at the center and calling in the different directions. And as, as they relate to the elements um, like fire, earth, water, and um, the associated archangel names. And mm -hmm. like, it, it, it sounds silly, but it's, um, whether you believe in the objective reality, because some magic practitioners do believe in the objective yeah. reality of these entities being separate things that they're calling in. But I mean, if you mm -hmm. adhere to the kind of transpersonal view, it's it's realizing that whether you believe they're real or not, they're still you. It's still... Right, still they're parts of all, yourself that you're calling in. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, yeah, so I, I, I do magic rituals every day. That is incredible. I, that is the most literal answer I've ever received, and I absolutely love it. And I feel so centered after doing them because incredible. each element, each direction represents different qualities within. What I love about that is I feel like so many of the rituals that we do in our daily lives, whether that's taking a walk or doing a morning sketch or these other kind of rituals that a lot of people have mentioned before, it's almost like trying to bring in those same energies, but yours is in such just, it's very direct. You're, that's exactly what you're doing. Well, and I just- Everything we do. It's really interesting. Every, every, yeah. every, all our words are, you know, every word we speak is a spell. That's why it's so important to be mindful mm -hmm. of, of, of our thoughts, how we speak, you know, without mm -hmm. getting too controlling and driving ourselves crazy over it. It's just to yeah. practice um, that dual awareness, the awareness of like, I am this, uh, transcendent being engaging with this very mundane worldly task and I can either do it mindlessly or I can really pay attention and do it super well and um, yeah yeah ultimately that's what ritual is supposed to do is to help you cultivate that awareness yeah. and by calling that in and bringing your attention to it every single day it becomes easier and easier to do everything in your life with intention so that your whole you know 
your whole being as a ritual. Yeah. You, you've already kind of addressed this throughout the conversation, but I'll ask anyway, what is inspiring your current creative process? Maybe something specific you've been noticing around you. Mm, really? I call this less an artistic process and more just like the process of bringing something into being, which is mm -hmm. my new business offering that I'll be launching in the new year, hopefully. Um, honestly, really just a desire to share all the different tools that I've learned in order to empower and heal myself with other people mm -hmm. in a way that that really bridges the worlds of like the more transpersonal spiritual healing space and science because mm -hmm. I don't like they're at odds just like everything else is at odds right now left and right yeah. you know, um, yeah, yeah. but they're just different systems for seeing the world and ultimately they're self-legitimating in a lot of ways mm -hmm. so I, um, I want people who engage with the more new age spiritual world to start thinking more critically and, and um, <laughs> um, using more reason with things. Mm -hmm. I, there's an imbalance. And then I want people yeah. who were like me, who are very scientifically conservative, who kind of stumbled into this after running away from it. Like my mom was very new age as a child and that had a mm -hmm. negative impact on me um, mm -hmm. to realize that looking at things from these viewpoints can actually be really enriching and you don't have to be someone who dresses up like a steampunk goddess in the desert <laughs> in order to engage. <laughs> right. <laughs> but not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but just, just to nope. people to realize that these things agree with one another on a fundamental level and that they can mm -hmm. enrich your life and that we have a duty of care as people who are working with other people to mm -hmm. inform ourselves as much as possible around the effects of trauma and, and, and other things that are affecting people because I see a lack of that. Basically, yeah, so, so, so to, to sum, sum it all up, I want people to, I want to empower people to make decisions that respect life. And in order to do that, you need to resolve some internal yeah. wounds. So that, that will probably extend to my artistic process once I'm more yeah. engaged with it again. But at the minute, my creative process, my, my, my birthing process of this new thing is centered around that. Um, yeah. That is so exciting. I'm really, truly excited to see where this goes for you. Yeah, me too. I have no idea right now. It's just like... <laughs> well, I think it's it's weirdly good timing. I see so many people going through these transformations this year, especially kind of birthing new ideas and new changes in their lives. Mm -hmm. And as chaotic of a time as it is, I think that also makes it even more fruitful for that. So yeah. I think it's exciting. Yeah. We've talked about everything, the wonderful things you're sharing on Instagram. So where can people find you online? Um, currently on Instagram, I'm rebuilding my website right now. Um, once okay. it's up, which will probably be around January, um, 2021, 2021. What's oh. in store for us? Oh my God. Um, oh be, dear. <laughs> I will be at, if you can be bothered to remember this podcast episode that you've listened to several months before, uh, www.antoniadulhane.com, which is just my first and last name.com. Easy peasy pumpkin squeezy. Very easy. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I'm going to go do a lot of research on magic. Oh, I'll and send you some shadow. Stuff. I'll send you some. Yes, stuff. please. Yeah. Please do. Yeah, I'm yeah. really excited. Yeah. There's a lot of crap out there, especially with, <laughs> oh, <I'm sure. laughs> with magic and shadow <laughs> sure. work. So I'll try and find you some good stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. Thank you. I, my, my first podcast. How did I do? I don't exciting. know. Exciting. Send me a rating. <laughs> 
For links to connect with Antonia and see more of her work, head over to the show notes at rubyjosephine.com slash podcast. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram or Facebook at Process Peace and get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox along with a whole lot of extra inspiration by subscribing to my newsletter, The Sunday Pancake, Letters in Reverence of Creative Rituals. Go to rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. If you've been enjoying Process Peace, I would so appreciate you choosing to support this podcast in any or all of three ways. One, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes. Two, share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. Or three, make a contribution at buymeacoffee.com slash A huge thanks again to Antonia for this incredible conversation. Thank you to Cooper Lee Smith for creating the original music for this podcast. And a special thanks to you for listening. Mm-hmm.